When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, me love is a boatsman, he's handsome and tall. He sails down the barrow, the neatest of all. With his red rosy cheeks and his scarlet blue eyes. He's the pride of the barrow, my young heart's delight. Now I wish him safe sailing by the Isle of Man. I wish him safe sailing by the Isle of Man. I wish him safe sailing as the north winds that blow with a fine pair of horses going down to Carlow. I started my boating career with my father and uh, an old man named Martin Weir in 1911. Sailing from Dublin to Tullamore and Port Harrington, Belmont, Ballinasloe and all round anywhere that we used to get the loading for. I remember I was in uh, Dublin the time of the 1913 Big Strike. We were in Dublin for about six or eight weeks at that t- particular time. And I remember the, the, the Russian food ships coming into port to feed the strikers at that very time. And I eat some of the food that was brought in at that time. Some of the boys used to bring it down to the, our boat and cook it in the boat. And that's a good while ago, isn't it? So when the strike was over, we started all over again, bringing loading anywhere we could get it. And we were, of course, it was a horseboat. They were all horseboats at that time. Well, I started at a very early age with my father. I started around 14 years of age. The time of the grazers. 24 hours in the canal that time it was. Night and day, no stop. Two men up, two men down. So it was very tedious and hard at times. My father used to always say to me, now, wherever you do, Jim, when you go around them locks, always make sure you keep your eyes open I never stand into one either open as rolled up to you. I always keep well away from the stop post. And the hardest part of it all was, I used to often say to myself, well, I wonder what I'll eat at home tonight now. I'd love to go off to an old picture or something. I'd say to my father, I think we'll get the pictures tonight in Munster Evan. My father said to me, I only want pictures for you now, boy. Get out of that dummy there and steer that one to Lower Town. And when you're going through them bridges, make sure you don't rubber in it. Because you do the next day and you go to you be going with that red book under your arm. Now I rove down by the bar of oh boys when free from all fatigue. Down by the devil's eyebrow that femland rock o' gring. I married jolly old boatsman, and to the scores we fell. 
His life upon the Grand Canal, I asked him for to tell. Like you had that feeling to go to that job. Because your people was, most of the people, your people was there before you. It was like handed down from father to son. Most of those boats now were working with a man and his two sons. Mostly all of them, any of them that had sons, they all uh, come to be... Uh, working on the board. Uh, now I had uh, uh, two brothers and my father working on the board. Mm. It's like a job that's handed down from one to the other. My grand, my grandfather, now old Tom Rose, he had a boat of his own uh, in what, oh, 1906. My father had his boat in after that, yeah. or so. maybe at that time. I don't know. I'd be uh, the third generation of boatmen. My father, my grandfather, and his father before him. All boatmen, every one of us. My father was even six months boatman, or three months, if I can say it right now. I was out several times. My grandmother often told me to ram home with the boat to give him confirmation. He was coming up from school one day, and he was coming across Killing Bridge. My grandfather was loading turf. My daddy was anxious to go home. He was trying to learn the calyx from home. And my grandfather called him and he says, Come here, Paul, and he said, I want you. My father went down, he took the books off him, gave him a cut of bread. He said, How one? He said, I'll never open the old horse. So my father said to him, Your mother be wise above. Never mind your mother talk. You're out to that one, we buy, he says, and you're in your keep. So my father got over the horse and headed to Lowertown. He walked back home and he said, My grandmother was in the Tabor State. Wondered to know what kept Paul, you know. Father often told me at night time when he was sitting down in the old cabin. Oh, he said it was hard times, though. There were times he said he was sorry he ever went around it. But then he says when he got hardier, there were a boat passing down another day and he was bound off, getting hardship at home with the old horse and everything. And he would often join this boat. And my grandmother that evening, she was waiting for him to come in. He said, no sign of him. My grandfather said, oh, he'll be all right. He's gone off for a trip with some lad in the boat now. My father was gone for a fortnight. So the boys were out to putting the man grazer on the boat. My father arrived home, how far and half done, up he goes to my grandmother on a great big pair of smocks, I'm as big as himself. She says, where were you, Paddy, at all? So my father heard the thought, he says, I'm boating no mother, he says. But she said, that's a grand holy, do all right, and you hadn't even your confirmation, God. God, sir, I said, for fifty years I've sailed its waters o'er. My trading and being with good old hands, alas, they are no more. God rest their souls, I'll pray for them through all the years that's gone. When first I trotted the lyre's deck when I was twenty-one, the old boats they were not driven then, by crowdale or by steam. But by the ray of horses they were hauled up against the stream. Those little boats, though built of wood, bore money's the heavy strain. From the port of Greg to Dublin town would forty tons of grain. We never minded the hours we had to walk, in the least. I remember now, uh, 
were after being tied up at uh, Ring's End. That's where we used to have to go for wait for loading. We were tied up there for five or six weeks. And the canal agent came out to my father one evening and asked him uh, would he be able to deliver a, a, a load of corn in Belmont by Monday. This was on a Thursday evening. I was fed up uh, in Dublin, honest to goodness, and uh, my father came out to me and told me about this load. He says, he will never be able to do it. So you take it, say, and we'll do it. And we loaded, uh, went over the, to Northwall uh, Friday morning and loaded uh, 45 ton of corn for Belmont. And it's a long run from Belmont, from Dublin to Belmont, with horses. We got the end of a horse over Grand Canal Street, uh, from uh, Mrs. Smolan, and he left us at the 13th lock that day. We were at the 13th lock, 12 o'clock that night, and we started off on our own. We travelled all that night. We travelled a Saturday night. We come down here. We were down here uh, at 11 o'clock on Sunday. I went to 12 o'clock mass. I went to a football match that, that uh, after dinner, and when I come back from the football match, my father had the horses yoked and all ready to go for Belmont. We travelled all night to Belmont, that's Sunday night. It was a great life. It wasn't a bit monotonous or anything like that. Uh, you were expecting to see someone, you know, maybe that night, or uh, you'd be meeting both and they'd tell you a bit of news or something like that. They were more loyal to one another. There was a great loyal crowd on the canal the time that I was on the canal. Yeah. They were all good, honest, good boatmen mm-hmm. and good workers, every one of them. Uh, you'd never hear a, a boatman or a man of the river shannon here saying port or starboard. Uh, uh, one word used was, was, was uh, the rope side and the other was scuttle. You see, uh, the stop rope was always on what we call now the port hand side of the boat. You stopped the barge. Most of these barges didn't have a reverse gear. They took the reverse gear on and the only way you could stop your barge was by with, with this rope around the post at the lock. And actually if you look at the lock up along on the way to Dublin or on any of the canal systems, you'll see that the, the track of the rope. Stopping a fully laden barge, the rope had to be wound around in a special way. That was the stop rope and it was always made on that particular side of the boat. The scuttle side was uh, the entrance into the caboose or where the four men lived, where the crew lived. That was the, the scuttle side and the rope side. But uh, uh, the lads from the barrow there was a particular crew of men from, from the barrow, and they always said, uh, Shinny and Hoggy. Shinny was port and Hoggy was starboard. And the reason for that was there was one particular man who uh, was a hackman. He had a barge of his own on the canal. But uh, in his latter years, the man became blind and lost his sight. And he couldn't give up uh, the boat because he was supporting his family uh, uh, by trading on the canal. But two of his sons crewed with him, Shinny and Hoggy. Shinny was a skinny fellow like myself, and Hoggy was nice and plump and well covered. So uh, as they'd be going along the canal or approaching a lock or anything like that, they'd shout the instructions back to the fellow, up to Shinny, over a little bit to Hoggy, the one who got the port or starboard. And, and the name spread and went around the place. And, it sounded very strange to hear a man coming into, say, Banner or something like that. Uh, bring over to Shinny there a bit. You know, but this is how actually the name came about. Come, all ye Dryland sailors, bowl and listen to me song. There's only forty verses and I won't detain you long. Tis all about the adventure yards of a bold young Irish tar who sail as man before the mast on the gunship Calabar. Now the skipper was a strapping lad, he stood just four foot two. His rose was red, his eyes were black, and his hair was a Prussian blue. 
He wore a leather medal that he won in the crime he wore. And his wife was passenger mate and cook on the gunship Calabar. Now we sailed away with a favouring breeze and the weather was sublime. But just in the straits of Rialto Bridge, where you can't pass two at a time, another craft ran into us which gave us a serious check. It stove in the starboard paddle wheel box and destroyed the hurricane deck. Now when hugging the shore of Inchicore, a very dangerous part, we ran aground on a lump of coal that wasn't marked on the chart. And to save ourselves from sinking and to save each precious life, we hove the main deck overboard including the captain's wife. Then all became confusion and the stormy winds did blow. The bones and slipped on an orange peel and fell into the hole below. The captain cried to the pirate brig and on us she does gain. And the next time I sail for Clondalk and boys I'll bloody sure go betraying. So we got our ammunition out to meet the coming foe. Our cutlasses and boarding pikes and gatling guns also. Put on full steam, the captain cried, for we are sorely pressed. But the engineer from the bank replied, the old horse is doing his best. All oh, thick and fast, the heroes fell, in turns the blood was spilt. Great numbers were falling before they were hit to make sure that they wouldn't be killed. And at last, when the pirates surrendered her flag, the crew being all on their backs, we found that she was a sister ship with a cargo of cobbler's wanks. Now the ship is in the marine stores now and the crew in the county jail. And I'm the only survivor left to tell of the terrible tale. But if I couldn't release that ship, I'd sail her off afar. And Admiral B of the Bloomin' Fleet on the fighting Calabar. Yeah, and the talk, uh, you see, there was no inter- other entertainment. All you could do was talk and work. You know, and, and, and uh, like steering a boat from... Uh, Dublin, right down to the Shannon, maybe up to Ballinasloe, and they travelled right through the night. Like on the canal, the boats travelled right through the night. They didn't travel on the Shannon during the night time. But like it was a cold and lonely old place in the back of a boat there. Mm-hmm. You know, and they were always very anxious to talk, and, and uh, this is how they passed the time. Uh, a man had a, to know his job, and he, knew, he had to know how to load a boat and how to load her properly. And uh, above all, to keep uh, slick supervision on everything that went into her and what was going out of her as well. Mm-hmm. All the cargo. Uh, when a man now would be a certain amount of time on the canal, he'd get a cute, you see, and he'd uh, uh, get properly developed into a proper boatman. Mm-hmm. There was a, there is a lot of technique in, in, in a, to have a good boatman, especially coming up to the Dublin locks, especially in the night, coming into dark places and steering boats into... Uh, locks and bridges mm-hmm. without bursting them, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there is a lot of, of uh, skill in that. Yeah. 
there was a lot uh, uh, depended on uh, on good judgment, and you want good eyesight as well, especially in the dark night there. No matter what dark night come, uh, the boat always had to go ahead, keep going all the time, dark or bright. Now I have seen fellas starting to walk on the canal late at life, and they were all right, you know, and done the best they could, but they wasn't the same as the... They never was the same as the chap that started at 14 or 15 years of age. If you were coming down on the canal steering in the dark, as you're steering the boat, and you've got a 50-ton of cargo, and there's a bridge there ahead, and there's a lock coming in the distance, and, and if your sight goes, or if a light blinds you, you lose your sight, like in the, in, in the pitch dark, and, and uh, even the fact of wanting to light a cigarette, you have to do it in a special way. You have to, to cop your hands and light the match, close one eye and light the cigarette. And like I've often seen this, and I, I, I became aware of this, was in the broad daylight, I saw men lighting cigarettes. And one night closed. Oh, it's not a You know, one night closed. But the reason for it was, from years and years on the canal, you light the match and you cup your hand and you close one eye and you light the cigarette. Well, that meant that the light of the match didn't blind that eye. As soon as you opened that eye, you could still see the bank and where you were going. Or if you, if you opened your two eyes and lit the match, you were going to put it in the bank and you were in trouble. Uh, are you aware of the fact that they used to have a little, uh, they used to take a little drop of porter out of each barrel, but they had a little law about it. Uh, uh, um, a sweet can was the maximum you take out of a firkin, and a biscuit tin was the maximum you take out of a, a hogshead. The method of doing this was, was uh, you, you just tap back the, the, the hoop on the barrel, and it was a gimlet board little hole, and filled your little sweet can. But if any fella took uh, uh, two cans of porter out of a hogshead, uh, he was ruined. You know, that was a, a mortar. Oh, just a lot of porter was a great man if you were drinking. Oh, sure. I tell you, it kept half of my life in the canal. I often was there myself too late the years when my father cut down to the Lord I'm sure. I gave a book at the port and I lived there behind me, steering along at night time, nine, ten o'clock in the night maybe, singing away to my heart's content and asking around me. Sometimes in the port would be no good, it wouldn't be in condition. So I'd read in the pork on the fire, real red, stick it down in the bucket, I'd mull it. You'd hear that then, <laughs> oh, great stuff though, not like the stuff today. Oh, well, important you'd have a gimlet. You're bored, but keep away from the stairs, like, you know. You went in between the stairs, you'd never stop it. It'd open up completely. You bore a hole in the centre, and you bore another one on top. That'd be in the wintertime, of course. But in the summertime, you see, you need to bore the one hole. It was mad, it was in condition. You held the bucket out, it might blow it over your hand, you see. But then you'd average, you'd take five or six pints out, of course. But then you knew you wasn't robbing anyone. Because Guinness always spent five or six pints extra on every barrel. It was a wooden barrel, you know, for leakage. See, but then Dyer and Lung came out and... That to tart that put pill to but we, 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 we conquered that too. We conquered that too. We had it for about two weeks going around, we found out how to do it. We got a, a lead going, a little tinker like, as we call a tinker like old things, we used to go into it. So we take away that with a pen knife. And we used to get the horn on the boat, we used to have a horn that thing, we see, for calling the lock keepers. So we get the horn, we push in the narrow path of it in. An old floor of port or mad. And when you put away the horn, it will lock itself again automatically. So we said, they were handy over here. So we yoked up a bit of a bent pipe. We used to shove it in and hold the bucket under it. But we'd only take maybe two pints out there long. Because, you see, we'd have the water with a wooden barrel and it wouldn't be in condition. So we'd give it two skirts of iron long for a head on it, you know. Oh, we gosh, I don't want to think what we done. So we had to do it to survive. One for all the money to work hands anyway. The greaser at that time only had uh, about 11 shillings a week. And the skipper, I think, had 18 shillings a week. Th- at that time that I started. 
Uh, the lock keepers were paid very bad. They had only 16 shins a week and had a rare family on it. Now come all ye lands that plough the seas and likewise seas the plough. Tis the cruise of a canal boat I'll be singing to you now. And she was the Mary Ann McHugh that ploughed the wintry surf. And she bore away from George's cave with a terrible load of turf. And the captain's name was Duff, and his manners they were rough. And every cape and headland on that treacherous coast he knew. And he issued this command, keep her well in sight of land. Till we make the coast of Dublin in the Mary Ann McHugh. Now this vessel was of one horsepower, propelled with a blackthorn stick. With a load of corn and a wind astern, should a horse went a terrible lick. Well, first we came by the hill of down, and then Kilcock we passed. And when we seen Johnny Quinn she been, sure he called out land at last. And the captain James E. Duff, he sent an off me land and off. And don't pull in near Johnny Quinn, whatever else you do. For last time we passed his door, we forgot to pay the score. And he has the police watching for the Mary Ann McHugh. Oh, then up and spake a sailor bold that sailed the Irish Sea. And he sent Paul into Johnny Quinn or the crew will mutiny. For to go to sea with a boy and me is a cruel thing, I think. With water, water everywhere, and devil the drop of drink. But the captain James E. Duff, he said, Enough, me man, enough. No man before the mast will ever teach me what to do. So haul on your sails at once, for this is our only chance. Farm to keep from death and danger in the Mary Ann McHugh. So with anxious heart this vessel starts all on her watery course. And the wind it lashed the rigging and the pilot lashed the horse. But all in vain beneath the strain the rope began to part. And we ran aground on a coral reef that wasn't marked on the chart. And the captain, James E. Duff, well, he hit me such a cuff. And then he said, go heave the lead and the flag at half-mast blew. But myself I'd had enough on that pirate, James E. Duff. So I heaved the lead at his head and fled from the Mary Ann McHugh. Cleanliness was of the utmost important. Uh, we used to wash the cabin maybe once a week at least. And used to keep it very tidy. Well, it was for our own uh, sake we, we used to do this. And we used to get the bedclothes washed and cleaned, uh, well, whenever they'd want it to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing we used to suffer from was bugs in the boat. We used to have plenty of bugs. Yeah. And them boys, they'd give you a terrible time. Yeah. We used to have to get uh, uh, 
what they call stoven for that. Uh, there used to be, uh, uh, oh, it was, uh, what do you call it now? Sulphur. You used to get a stone of sulphur and red pepper and light it in the fire and keep everything down uh, airtight and set, the, set this thing alight and it would kill everything that was in. Uh, about once a year. About once every 12 months. Years ago on the canal, when, when all this traffic and when there was so much porter carried and all the rest, you had uh, uh, quite a few people uh, that were prepared to travel, say, from Battlebridge up into Loch Allen or from James Street down to Mullingar or Hazel Hatch, anywhere you wish. Uh, they were prepared to help on the boat and unload and others, provided they got a little bit of nourishment in return. But uh, the only problem was once they got on board, like you take a plan on James Ritten, he said he was going to always give you a hand as far as Luke, and he'd help you with the locks, closing the gates, and opening the gates, and doing this, that, and the other. And uh, he got his nourishment in return. But he ended up with his own town, Shannon Harbour. This is what I've been told, anyway. And uh, he was called a Weber. And I inquired, what was this board? I accepted the board, and that was, if I was looking for a lift for a fellow from Jamestown to Ruski, a free lift on a boat, or I wanted to get a spin, yeah, I was prepared to go webbing. But uh, when I inquired where actually the word came from, one problem on a boat, uh, if you got spiders into a boat, and they're cobwebs, it was an awful job to get them out. You were dusting constantly, you never got rid of them, and this is how the name webbing came about. Once you got one of these fellows on the boat, he never left it. So there's the reason for the word webbing. Oh, a bright barn day in the month of May And a weeping group stands by Barn to be that you to the gallant crew That sails as the sun mounts high Leaning over the waves of the mariners brave That wreck not of storm or rock And they laugh and smoke and they jest and joke, though they're bound for the thirteen to lock. Ah, oh, skipper Skay, quote a mariner gay, who stood nigh Marabone Lane. I'm a sailor old, and I throw as bold as rolls on this angry main. Thirteen be still, tis a number ill, beware young man, don't mock. Right scornfully laughed the captain, see, I am bound for the thirteen to luck. Oh, Pat, beware, cried a damsel fair, sail not today, me dear. We warned on scorn, tis Friday morn, the day through mariner's fear. And what would I do, Pat, if I lost you? Sure my heart couldn't stand the shock. Full merrily laughed the captain, see, I am bound for the thirteenth luck. Cease, love, those eyes, dim not your eyes with beauty-killing tears. And you may be bound, I'll come back sound, so calm your woman's fears. And I'll bring to thee a chimpanzee, a parrot and a jabberwock, a kangaroo and a cockatoo from the wilds of the thirteen to luck. Now uh, there was places, and uh, you could uh, you you couldn't even tie up a boat in the night in it. They were supposed to be haunted, mm. and there was haunted places on the canal, especially around the thirteen lock. It was haunted. A man used to come up uh, and. Uh, to get the lock ready for the boat coming 
and maybe he'd throw the key of the lock down away and it'd be thrown back at him again. It was done now years and years ago. Yeah. Uh, I believe the 13, where the 13 lock is, it is made through a graveyard, built through a graveyard. And uh, that thing used to happen. But I think the prayers after mass done away with all that. But there was other places now when you couldn't uh, tie a boat in the night in it. You'd hear ghosts all night. You couldn't sleep in it. Oh yes, there is, all right. Especially coming up now, uh, round the 13 log, that was a dangerous place, all right. And up Gollierstown. Gollierstown, that'd be near Luke in there. If you were past that, you, were, you weren't too bad. Now the ship set sail with a piercing wail rang out from the womankind. Port your helm a leak, quote the captain he, and we'll catch the southern wind. Spur up your steed to its fastest speed, tis long past twelve o'clock. We should sight the shore of Inchicore, then ho for the thirteenth lock. But never the shore of Inchicore could the man at the masthead see. Though he craned his knight to the quarter deck, he came and thus spake he. Now, skipper, tis true, I am your crew, your mate and all in stock. But I'm hanged if I'll steer for a place so queer as this cursed thirteen to luck. Let us change our way till another day and smoke and spin a yarn. On the evening's tide we'll at anchor ride in the bay of Dolphin's Barn. Then the skipper quick gave a mighty kick and the mariner felt the shock. And the crew found a grave neat a deep blue wave on the way to the thirteenth luck. Thus ever quote he, perish mutiny, and turned him round with a smile. About and around and lo he found a shape behind a wheel, with fiery eyes and horns of size, and a tail that might Peter shock. At the skipper's gape, um spake the shape, I am bound for the thirteenth long. By the harbour sands a maiden stands with her gaze fixed out to sea. But she'll watch in vain for never again will he come with that chimpanzee. And the Jew man stands wringing both his hands his face like a marble block. For the skipper bold borrowed half his gold ere he sail for the thirteenth log. Four men lived in a terribly confined space up in the front of these barges, and like every fellow had his own particular area that he had to, to, to keep to, you know, his own bunk. The skipper, of course, always had the best one up beside the coast, uh, the, the heater, the fire, the, the turf fire, or the coal fire that was up in the, the front of the boat. But even, even the cooking methods, uh, um, there was one, there wasn't room, you see, in the small area to lay out a table with four knives, four cups, sauce, or something. They had one communal dish. Cut the cushion. Well, I'll tell you what it is now. You come along now, and if you have much money or much grub, I'll tell you what you'll do. If you have a good few spuds, and one little small skin of a rasher, or a piece of a rasher, or a piece of bacon, and an onion, cut it up real fine. 
peel your potatoes, prawn your pan. If you have a bit of dripping or a bit of fat ratting, raise your pan. Peel all your spuds, throw them down in the pan. A little bit of meat in the top of it. And then get an onion and have that cooked in a little old saffron as well, nearly cooked. When the whole lot then starts steaming, you print water, cold water in the top of the pan. Swing your bits of meat and the onion, the whole line on top of it, and put an enamel plate down on top of it, and lower in your primes. And you see the lead lifting like this, and the steam coming out of the sides of it. Get a knife then, a bit of a cloth, and take off your enamel plate, lay it down, stir the whole lot up, more water in, until it all nearly goes into mush. When it's near done, then you have the table ready, and you lay it down and crop it off a bit, of course, you won't plenty any butter on it. You save butter with the curly cush, you see, they go around the sides of the pan, and they'll be smacking their lips after it. Oh, that then will flow into it. But it's a nice old feed when you have nothing else like, you know, it's, it's tasty. But you can't bait the pig's head. Oh, the pig's head is me man, boy. The pig's head is the only dish. Well, with the pig's head, you see, you cut it all up. We need one big plate and a great big white enamel basin. So we cut up the pig's head on the plate. And before we cut it all up, you see, we'd have all the, the cabbage first over the saucepan. We'd have it in a big old strain and we'd make ourselves and shake it open and throw it into the basin. Get a big knife and chop it all up. And then when that was all chopped up, we corrupt the pig's head and in on top of it. Then when the spuds would be done, we'd throw a big heap of spuds on one side of the table, another heap on the other side. And there was the basin in the middle. Throw it round in a knife and fork a piece all around it. One lad in one lock, another lad in another lock, and a lad in a little stool like a milking stool. And here you'd be then, dig for dig, dig in all you could at one time. Sometimes them wanted to be real low in the basin. And I'd say, ha ha, I got that bitty, go for it. She couldn't be able to cabbage to be made of, what was it? Sometimes in the hole come in the enamel basins. We used to have to tear a bit of the old sheet of the bed, maybe, a bit of old shirt. And twist it and shove it up in the hole and pull it through and put a knot on it. And redden the pork on the fire. And burn off then to the, the old cloth, you see. To stop the crazy water from coming down on the old table on you. Here your man go for it and he pulled the whole bit of the cloth or shut it right through the hole in the basin. Well, Jesus, we should tell you great ones. Pig's head was a very favourite thing, but cleanliness was of the utmost importance. Even cleaning the pig's head, they had a method of doing it. Uh, sterile, you talk, I suppose, sterilising this and sterilising that. What they done, they heated the poker actually in the coops in the fire, in the hot coals, and they burned out the, the ears of uh, the pig's head and the nostrils, and it was shaved, and it was cleaned, and the, the pig's head was cooked, and it is. And the whole lot puts pig's head in the centre and the potatoes around the side of one place. And each man had a fork, and on the corner of the table there, he's soft. And the four men out of the one dish. But it was divided into four sections, and if you went over into that section there, you got a fork, so you're looking very rapidly. I remember now a lot of drownings in my time. And they were simple drownings. I remember a man uh, getting up to fill the kettle uh, from the water barrel, to, uh, to fill the kettle to make tea, and he slipped off the deck, and uh, he got drowned. And that was simple enough. Mm. It was in a wide place, all right, up near Tuberdaly there, between Road Bridge and Tuberdaly Bridge. Mm. Mm. And I remember another man, uh, Paddy Gill. He was steering the boat into uh, Ticknevin, and he slipped out and got stuck in the mud, and he couldn't get the, uh, out of it, he got drowned. 3rd of December, 1948. I remember leaving Tullamore around 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. My father and myself. And we were coming, we said, we'd go up as far as Killinlaa that night, like, we'd tie up the boat there and we'd wish my daddy's mother and, or my daddy's brother and sister a happy Christmas. So we left anyway when we got the Ticknevin lock. My father said, you get out to the lock, no Jimmy, says, ready, he says, and I'll 
Troy up the rope, he says. So I said to my father, okay, I says, I got out. John Pender, the lock keeper, was there as well. Then. John Pender says, good night, Jim. I said, good night, John. How are you all night? God, he says, it is. He says, where are you after? I said, we're going off. We have a load of him. He says, where? I said, we're running up as far as kidding lads tonight. That'll do what you want. Father swooped the rope and we stopped the boat in the lock. She rose up. I opened the breast gates. John Pender took off the stop rope and he threw it into my father and he wished him a happy Christmas. So we got when she was leaving the lock anyway, we don't need room and I filled the trucks and pumped out the old bilge and looked at her. She was nodding up and said, my father, everything's all right down there now. I think now, Jimmy, said, you ought to go up and make us up a tea. And again, you have the tea ready, he says, we'll be at Killing Bridge. We'll tie up there then and we'll drink the tea, he says, and we'll clean up the old cabin. We'll go up then and we'll wish your aunt and your uncle a happy Christmas. Fair enough, sir. So I went up and I lit the old Primus. When the Primus was late and I went up the ladder and took the lid off the water barrel, the mug would always be hanging in the barrel, of course, that time with a nail in it, you know. Filled up my kettle, brought her down, put her down the Primus, sat down and was just, that time I didn't throw the table because we were in the tools and I put a bit of t- paper in the locker and put down the two mugs and the old bowl and spoon a piece and two cuts of bread. Next thing the boat struck the bridge. I lipped up anyway, I lipped up, boat was going full bore. She was only going from one side of the bank to the other, nowhere. I ran back to Dick, showed and bought for my father, no father, daddy was gone. So my father's push bike was behind old Dick, load of empties, and I took it out and I rode to Carberry and the county galeras about four miles away. The police brought me back and threw the old bike alongside him in the car. Showed him out, I dragged the river until three o'clock in the morning. I said, your father's not hindered, you may go to bed. So I said, I'll wait anyway, daddy might be back. So myself and my daddy's sister and brother, we sat there in the cabin waiting and waiting and wondering and thinking, no saying, every minute we'd hear a step coming. No step, no daddy. I got an easy anyway in daylight broke, as you know, winter time. About nine o'clock I walked down the bank, just right in front of Kine's house, there's a slip where people goes out to raise water up. There he was standing up in the water, his left hand tight on his breast, another one by his side, and the water barely flowing over his hair. Four feet in mud. Oh, me love is a boatsman. He's handsome and tall. He sails down the barrow, the neatest of all. With his red rosy cheeks and his scarlet blue eyes. He's the pride of the barrow, my young heart's delight. Now I wish him safe sailing by the Isle of Man. I wish him safe sailing by the Isle of Man. I wish him safe sailing as the north winds that blow with a fine pair of horses going down to Carlow.